Welcome to MCS Pentecast, Pentecostal podcast about theology and life in the Spirit, featuring both scholars and practitioners. MCS Pentecasts are produced by Masters College and Seminary in Ontario, Canada. I'm Van Johnson, Dean of Masters Pentecostal Seminary. What challenges might classical Pentecostal denominations face when it comes to the emerging adult cohort growing up among their ranks? This is Peter Newman, Assistant Academic Dean of Masters College. This Pentecost is a summary presentation of a paper I prepared for the 2014 Annual Meeting of the Society for Pentecostal Studies. The title of the paper is Spirit Baptism in Communal Perspective. The Challenge of Traditioning Pentecostal Spirituality Among Canadian Emerging Adults. This talk explores some of the cultural influences that Canadian emerging adults are bringing with them into Pentecostalism and how this raises challenges for certain denominational doctrines and institutional policies. I suggest that it also should encourage Pentecostals to take a fresh look at Acts 2 through a communal, ecclesial lens. Along with the audio, a PDF document of the presentation slides is also available for download through MCS Pentecasts. This talk was recorded live in Springfield, Missouri, March 8, 2014. Well, good morning. Uh, I've been asked, first of all, to uh, let you know there was a, a glitch with my paper getting onto the SPS uh, zip file site. I just got an email late last night to make an official apology uh, about that on behalf of uh, SPS. Anyway, um, so what your alternative is to, if you have some electronic device, to go to that site or take a snapshot of that QR code and you should be able to access the PDF from there. Um, or alternatively, there's some hand, I just made a few of the slides, but that's not of the paper. So I'll, you know what, if I can just um, give you those, if you want to keep one of those, that's fine. So. Um, I changed my title a little bit uh, from simply traditioning to the challenge of traditioning, uh, Pentecostal spirituality among Canadian emerging adults. Changed that from young adults just due to the literature uh, speaking much more so about it, the title emerging adults rather than young adults. Uh, where I want to start here is by reading two responses from two undergrad Bible college students training for ministry at Masters Pentecostal Bible College. And uh, here they are. Uh, the, the respon these responses, by the way, are to the question uh, of the PAOC's policy that only those who have spoken in tongues are eligible for ministerial credentials. Oh goodness, this thought is medieval. And yet another student on polar opposite would say, I would agree if this is the stance of the PAOC and they have scripture to prove the importance, so be it. Right? So polar opposite types of things. And so part of my study here was investigating the opinions of the young adults, the emerging adults that, that I deal with uh, day after day. It's the tone of this first response, however, that really motivated me to work on this paper. Uh, this paper is a hybrid of sorts. Initially, I was going to do something in the theology stream, and that's generally where I end up. Um, and uh, that's the reason, uh, because this paper ended up as a hybrid, it ended up to be, instead of 20 pages as I intended, it ended up to be about 60 pages, and, uh, which, but apparently Dr. Lim has been very helpful 
uh, helping me reveal some underlying compulsions within me. <laughs> so I appreciate that, and we'll get some help and work on that afterward. But um, my, my, my initial interest was, was what if we look at Acts 2 as uh, theologically uh, through a communal lens. I mean, this conference is all about interpretation and hermeneutics and this type of thing. What if it's a corporate experience, primarily more so than individual experience, where Pentecostals tend to go? And that was the direction I was tending to go. But I'm also a teacher, and I'm an assistant academic dean at this college. And, and again, I, I stand in front of and look into the eyes of emerging adult students week after week and attempt to have a classroom environment that's transparent and that's safe. And I teach course on the Holy Spirit and Pentecostal distinctives in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada where we're trying to you know, make credential holders, right? And have them believe certain things. And in that type of environment, I'm welcoming questions. And, and so some questions keep coming up over and over again, not because the students are rebellious and trying to you know, kick against the system, but rather they're just, they just wanna know. And they're wondering about their own lives, and they're wondering about their friends. And one of the questions that keeps coming up is that whether, why, why this initial evidence doctrine? And another one more practically is the, why do those who have not spoken in tongues, but who are really good Christians, why are they not eligible for ministerial credentials? It's simply, it doesn't matter about all the theological explanation and the exegesis and everything else. At the end of the day, that makes no sense to them. It doesn't resonate. Well, I was wondering, okay, am I just reading it that way, or is this really what's, what's going on? And I think, I think I'm reading it correctly. And so what I'm suggesting uh, here is that there is a challenge to at least classical Pentecostals, if you're not involved in one of those denominations, and this is of, of different interest to you. But uh, for those involved in classical Pentecostal denominations especially, I would suggest the challenge for us, at least in Canada, is not that other denominations are challenging our Pentecostalism. In fact, that battle is, doesn't exist among the people. I, it's not there. People are, are, are warm towards Pentecostalism. The challenge, I think, is growing from within. Pentecostal distinctive doctrine, spirit baptism is subsequent, tongues is initial evidence. They've always been controversial. They've been controversial because other denominations have always charged. That creates a two-tiered Christianity, a haves and a have-nots. But it's not the outsiders, those outside of classical Pentecostalism, that are bringing that charge anymore. It's the emerging adults. And why this bothers them is that those doctrines and then related institutional policies, what happens is that it excludes people. And they find that idea very difficult to, to stomach. And so the challenge for Classical Pentecostalism is not from without, at least in Canada. It's from those emerging within our ranks. So what do we do? Well, we can circle the wagons and say, we're not going to change our minds. But on the other hand, you know, and then there's something to that. You don't want to give up long-held values that you hold and things you want to pass on. Um, I'm just wondering if whether we can use the voice of emerging adults as an opportunity to take a fresh look at our doctrinal articulations and some policies and see whether there's perhaps some different angles we can look at things. In any case, I don't think this is something we could ignore. If we want to tradition to pass on Pentecostal values, we can't ignore what emerging adults are thinking about and what they're feeling. And so that's the reality that motivated this study for me. Uh, quickly, some guiding questions that brought me through this paper here. 
um, guiding questions to this hybrid exploration. I, I wondered, okay, so what are the cultural assumptions of emerging adults, 18 to 29 years old, just in North America in general? So it got me into exploring that. And, and again, I teach theology. This is not typically my area, but I thought, okay, I need to understand this a little bit better. So that's what I did. And then, then what I wanted to go on from there is to say, okay, but to what degree are these cultural assumptions we find in Canada and more broadly in North America, are these being expressed among the emerging adults training for Pentecostal ministry in the college in which I teach? And then thirdly, is there a way to theologically address the cultural challenges of emerging adults with regard to Pentecostal distinctive doctrines and policies? And uh, in that respect, I think there's perhaps some some ways forward, maybe taking a fresh look at Acts chapter 2 through a different lens, a communal lens. So first of all, just, just briefly here, um, there's not a lot of time for this, but emerging adult culture. Uh, some resources that were helpful for me uh, in a Canadian context were Reginald Bibby's study on uh, emerging adulthood, um, another study called Hemorrhaging Faith that was commissioned by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada Youth Roundtable did uh, some surveys and studies of, of youth across, and emerging adults across Canada. In the United States, Christian Smith's work uh, was helpful to me as well. Um, all sorts of characteristics I discovered, and they're in the paper. Here I just want to identify two of them. Emerging adults uh, have a tendency to be, or to value highly, radical autonomy. Uh, they want to be free to explore life and opportunities. Secondly, they highly value communal inclusivity. They're suspicious of group policies that would restrict them from exploring their options and autonomy, suspicious of too much institution. This, this inclusivity and value of diversity is perhaps more highly held in Canada than the U.S. due to multi multiculturalism being an official government policy since 1971 in Canada. Uh, let me just give you a quote here from Reginald Bibby on this. He said, what started out as an emphasis on languages and cultures you know, being diversified has expanded to create a psyche of diversity and inclusion. We now have a Canada characterized not only by cultural and racial mosaic, but also by a religious mosaic, a sexual mosaic, a family mosaic, and educational mosaic, a moral mosaic, a lifestyle mosaic, and so on. And this is... In other words, this is in our public school system. This is what my kids, the environment in which they are being raised and the students that we have at our Bible college. How does this apply to church? The hemorrhaging faith study said this. Young adults are turned off of church by people, programs, and practices that notice and account for certain individuals to the exclusion of others. In fact, young adults are so committed to the values of inclusion and acceptance that they don't just get annoyed for their own sakes. Now, this is important. Sometimes their beef with exclusive church members and practices is motivated by empathy for others. In other words, it's not just I have something personally invested. It's why, what about these others? What about these others? This is crucial for us. And Christian Smith would say, would say similar things. So, are these type of values, are they seen in our Bible college in Peterborough? Training PAOC ministers. So I surveyed our entire student body this past December 2013. I asked them about what they believed about spirit baptism, initial evidence, and the PAOC policy on tongues as a requisite for credentials. In my paper, I show you that the survey is there as an appendix. Uh, what I did is I compared the results of the entire student body, those at least under 30, uh, with a narrower group that I thought would be most likely to agree with PAOC stuff. In other words, the, they would be in their third and fourth year, they've taken a course on the Holy Spirit with me, and they've spoken in tongues. 
In other words, there's nothing excluding them from perhaps one day getting credentials. So here's just really quickly, I found some pie charts. The more blue the color, the more it agrees with PAOC, right? The more red, right? Less so. So here's the first question. General student responses, spirit baptism is an experience subsequent to conversion. Large groups are in favor of this. No problem, narrower group, no red, right? So that tells you I'm doing something right when I teach the class and I should get a raise. So anyway, first, <laughs> first conclusion. And, and, uh, and okay, so next one. Little oh, tongues is the initial evidence. More red, okay, but still lots of blue. What happens when they've taken my course? Notice this, again, Whoa. should, yeah, I know, so, Vanny, you listening to this? Just, okay, just phone this right in. All right, um, so again, there's tables in the paper, and we can see this a little bit more here. It's just the colors I want us to pay attention to here. Spirit baptism in tongues is important for Christian leadership and ministry. General student response, quite a large majority, you know, some have some doubts, they're mostly agree, but fairly large majority. In the narrower group, this becomes even larger. Now, here's the important question, though, for me. What about this requisite of tongues in order to get credentials? See, look at this. We have upward of, what, 60 some odd percent strongly disagree, somewhat disagree, and some who are, have doubts. It's the minority. It's the minority that would say, that's okay, out of the general student population. Uh, within the narrower group, that changes to an extent, but it's still, notice, those that are quite sure are still in the minor minority. This doesn't matter whether they believe in the Bible and the theology of all the doctrinal statements. It doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, this is a practical reality for them. This is where the rubber meets the road. So what do we do? Oh, just, just briefly also, I asked the students, why, I was trying to figure out why is it that they resisted this, uh, these policies uh, with regard to only those who have spoken in tongues eligible for credentials. Um, you can read a lot of the comments in the paper. I've included a lot of them, but they would say things such as, God determines gifts, not humans. Character is more important than tongues or any gift. Initial evidence doctrine might be unscriptural. Many good people are being excluded from ministry. It's unloving, unfair, or weird, medieval, as you saw before, to exclude on the basis of tongues. Pursuit of bapti spirit baptism is all that should be required. Another one, in other words, if somebody's seeking this type of thing. So how do we respond? Two steps, I suggest. First one is this. I believe that we need to become more aware of ourselves as classical Pentecostals. Uh, it's not simply emerging adults that value individual autonomy. Early Pentecostals loved that too. It's not, it's not uh, merely emerging adults that are suspicious of institutions. They love community. But what they want is an open door policy on their community. You can come and go as you please. But early Pentecostals were certainly suspicious of man-made institutions as well. Even here, read, I can remember reading something similar in the Azusa Street paper. Man-made institutions, right? They don't like that type of thing. Um, spirit baptism, we have always emphasized that as individual personal experience. And what we've tried to argue when it came to scholars, Stanley Horton, Robert Menzies, and others is, Pentecost experience is repeatable. It's repeatable. It's not regeneration. It's empowerment for service. That's good. But this repeatability issue is the one that comes up over and over again. Acts 2 is not the birthday of the church. And Robert Menzies, uh, Luke has a distinctive pneumatology. Actually, really good stuff. Gifts to us, except his more recent work that came out last summer in which he suggests the miracle of Pentecost was not 
that God had the church speak other languages, but it was the miracle was in the hearing. That is a reversal, I believe, of his earlier hermeneutic. And I think it's, it's agenda-driven, not biblically driven, but we're not in a biblical department here. Okay, so what's the second step? Quickly here, second step, I think uh, what we need to do is apply a communal lens to Acts chapter 2. Here's a good question for us. Is Acts chapter 2 primarily a story concerned with individual or corporate experience with the Spirit? I'm not saying it's, it's either or here. I'm simply asking, which is it primarily dealing with here? Is this about an experience happening to the church and then individuals can participate? Or is it something else? And I think also we need to acknowledge the non-repeatable aspects of the day of Pentecost, which out, without giving up the repeatable. Anthony Palma is a wonderful AG scholar who does exactly this. I use his book in my course. He says it's both. It's not either or. It's both and. And so from that point in the paper, I go into some more theology stuff. So I'm going to go through this quite quickly. Some, there's three points. I think if we look at Acts 2 through a communal lens, this may provide us with a way forward in dialoguing with emerging adults. First of all, we will learn, if we look at this as a communal event first, we will see Pentecost is a historical community-shaping event. Roger Stronstadt, Canadian uh, scholar, gets at this a little bit through the title of one of his books, Prophethood of All Believers. Simon Chan is, I think, uh, probably a, a much richer resource in this regard. He believes spirit baptism is an ecclesial event, a community-forming event. Look, it doesn't matter. I'm not arguing this is a regeneration experience. Even if we go with Luke saying this is an empowering experience, and I tend to buy that, it's a communal event. In other words, it's different than before the day of Pentecost. It changed the church forever that day. That's my point here, and Simon Chan does a great job in talking about that. Secondly, I think we'll find that Pentecost accents the diverse and inclusive nature of the church community. Why did God choose tongues on the day of Pentecost? Well, if it's about individual experience, then who cares what the sign is? Who cares? It just ends up to be a receipt to show that I had an experience. Do you have your receipt? You know? That's not the point. That's why I think Menzies makes a mistake saying that it's in the miracles and the hearing. No, God chooses tongues because he's saying, I'm empowering the church to include others. That's the point. Frank Mackey, of course, has done lots of work on this. He prefers the word sign over evidence, as do I. He speaks about all sorts of reasons and significance to the word tongue, to why tongues were used. I think we need to explore. Last point. Pentecost accents the koinonia, the fellowship of the spirit. In other words, that on the day of Pentecost, in the empowering of the church, there's a forming and shaping of also loving relationships of the church. Pentecostals often don't get to the end of Acts chapter 2. Evangelicals never use the top part of Acts chapter 2, right? They don't talk about it. They talk about the, this end part where the church sold their possessions and they gathered for prayer and all these types of things. Uh, Stronstadt talks about it a little bit in his book, uh, Prophethood of All Believers. Amos Young, in his book, The Spirit of Love, takes this head on wonderfully and says, you know, Luke never actually mentions the word love in his books. But what is it that we see happening as a direct result of the baptism of the community into the spirit on the day of Pentecost? So a couple of questions for us to just think about. In what ways might a communal reading of Acts 2 cause Pentecostals to rethink the exclusivistic elements of spirit baptism and initial event doctrines and related credential policy? And then secondly, might a communal view of Acts 2 provide a more fruitful way forward? 
as Pentecostals face the challenge of traditioning their values to emerging adults. Our, our idea of what spirit baptism means to the individual must fit into what spirit baptism meant to the community. And I find the exclusivity of it in policy, at least at this point, that's what I'm targeting, seems to me to be incompatible with what's going on in Acts chapter 2. And I think young adults, emerging adults, uh, intuitively are going to reject that, not for theological reasons, but cultural. But I think there's some reasons why we might, might be good for us to listen to them. Okay, I'm done. <coughs> Am I over time? <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed this episode of MCS Pentecast, podcast produced by Master's College and Seminary. MCS Pentecasts are available online at mcs.edu and also through iTunes Podcasts. Master's College and Seminary offers biblical, theological, and practical courses from a Pentecostal perspective at both undergrad and graduate levels. For more information on graduate courses offered through the seminary in Toronto, Canada, visit mpseminary.com. For undergrad courses at Master's College in Peterborough, please visit mcs.edu.